So the experts, the professionals, they can accomplish your responsibilities flawlessly on your behalf. The crowd cheers as your free throws go in. The teacher is ecstatic over the brilliant discoveries in your math homework. And the crowd stands in an ovation as they had no idea your cello could make that kind of music. But you know, we do have someone who stands in for us, in fact, in a much more important way than these sort of silly examples. Jesus stands in for us with all of His power, with all of His authority, and with all of His love. In fact, we're going to learn in the Bible this morning in Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 20, 20 through 23, this, that Jesus is powerful for us. He's not just powerful. He is that, right? He's powerful for us. So in these verses, Ephesians 1, 20 through 23, we're going to find that Jesus is powerful for us in three ways. Are you listening? Even if you're not, here we go. Jesus is powerful for us because now the worst thing that can happen is not that bad. Jesus is powerful for us because we may not be in charge, but the one who is in charge knows us. And finally, Jesus is powerful because Jesus loves His people. So let's read these three verses together real quick. I'm going to read them. You can follow along with me, or you can just listen as I read. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 20. He, that is God, worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named not only in this age, but also in the age to come. He put all things under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all and in all. So we see here a description of Christ's great power and Christ's great position and His honor and His authority that's been given to Him. But what we have to remember is what verse 19 said about all of these things. Look just very quickly at verse 19. What is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe? You see what he said? What is the great measure of His power toward us who believe? And then he, in the verses we're going to look at today, he describes Christ's great power and great authority and great honor. So what he's telling us here is, I want you to understand not just Christ's great power, but His power toward you who believe. The point here is not merely that Jesus is powerful. He's powerful for us. Jesus is powerful for us. He's going to describe His power to us. He's going to describe what His power looks like in our life. And we have to keep in mind that the power of Jesus is, in fact, for us. Okay, so we're going to start first. Look at verse 20. Jesus is powerful for us because the worst thing that can happen isn't that bad. I don't know if you remember when Hurricane Katrina hit St. Louis. By St. Louis, I mean uh, New Orleans. Why did I say St. Louis? It's bizarre. It's close. But they said, it's over there. They said, you know, the worst thing that could possibly happen is the levees could all break and the pumps could fail, but that'll never happen. And then what happened? All the levees failed and the pumps failed and the entire city was flooded. They said the worst thing that could happen is the whole city could be flooded. And in fact, the worst thing that could happen did happen. And many of us might even say the worst thing that could happen is much worse than they could have imagined. 
But in our situation, what's the worst thing that we're going to face in our life? The worst thing that we're going to face in our life is the fact that our life doesn't last forever. The worst thing we face in our life is that at some point our life is going to end. Now, the older we are, the more we're aware of the fact that our life doesn't last forever. The younger we are, the more we don't even want to think about it. But the fact is, the worst thing that we have to face is the fact that at some point our life will end. But in Christ, because He is powerful for us, the worst thing that could happen is in fact not that bad. Look at Ephesians 1.19. What is the immeasurable greatness of His power towards us who believe? He continues in verse 20. He worked in Christ in that He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Jesus rose from the dead. Now, what, could, what does this mean for us? Well, it's the only hope that we have. If you look in Romans chapter 6, verse 8, I'm going to have a lot of verses here. You don't have to turn to them if you don't want to. Romans 6, 8 says this, Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. If we have died with Him, we will also live with Him. And in fact, 2 Timothy 2.11 repeats that same thing. It says this, if we have died with Him, we will also live with Him. So the Bible teaches us that if we die with Christ, we will also be raised with Christ. So the question must be, well, how do I die with Christ? I want to live with Christ, so how do I die with Christ? And the Bible teaches us that it is through faith that we die with Christ. When we trust that Christ died on the cross for our sins and believe that we needed Him to die on the cross for our sins because we have disobeyed God's uh, ways and we have sinned and we have rebelled against Him, we say, Jesus' death was for me. The Bible says when we trust what Jesus did on the cross, we participate in His death through faith. We don't have to actually die. What's great about this setup is Jesus does all the heavy lifting. He does all the dying. We do all the trusting. And the Bible says when we trust that Christ died on the cross for us, then in a very real way, we have died with Him. His death is credited to us. And even so, when we have died with Him, the Bible says we don't remain dead. We are raised with Him. Because we trust that He died for us, we can also know that we will be raised with Him when he is raised, when we are, I should say, after we die, and Jesus calls us home. Hebrews also touches on this in Hebrews chapter 12. I'm going to read Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, excuse me, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So the Bible describes this great cloud of witnesses that surrounds us. These are all the ones who have gone before us, those who have lived in Christ and have died, because, and now they live in glory forever. And all these have gone, gone before us, and they have been raised with Christ. And we can take hope in knowing that as they have trusted God and now we're experiencing new life with God, we also, when we trust Christ, we die with Him and we anticipate being raised with Him. Others have died and lived, and we will too when we trust and believe in the work of Christ. Romans 8 says this in Romans 8, 18, I consider 
that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Paul says a really astounding thing in that verse. He says this, when we step across the shore into glory, when our life here ends and our life with Christ forever begins, we will look back on the difficulties of this life and say, well, that wasn't such a big deal. Why do you get so worked up about that? The glory of the life we have to look forward to will look, make the pains and sufferings of this life pale in comparison. The worst thing that could possibly happen to us is moving from here to glory. And in Christ, that worst thing is merely a, an upward movement from a life that at many times is characterized by difficulty and suffering into finally living as we're supposed to live. Christ's power toward us is through faith. We trust that what Christ did on the cross was for us, and in so we look forward to living with Him forever. That's good news. I can tell you're ecstatic. <laughs> it's a matter of faith. Do we trust that what Christ is going to do on the other side of our funeral is really that good? If your view of heaven is cupids and clouds, oh my land, how dull. But if your view of heaven is Christ putting us in a place where we are finally living the life He intended for us to live, in the way He intended for us to live, and in His presence forever, you, you, you're, you're ecstatic. When's my funeral? Let's plan it. Let's get it on the calendar. The worst thing that could happen isn't that bad because Jesus is powerful for us. In the next verse, we're going to see this. Jesus is powerful for us. In this, we may not be in charge, but the one who is knows our name. We may not be in charge, but the one who is knows us. A news story came out a little while ago. This four-year-old boy was going to be, get to see Queen Elizabeth, Queen of England. He was in his best suit, his hair was combed, his face was clean, and he was going to see the queen. Don't know why he was going to see her, but he was going to see the queen. It just so happened this four-year-old boy, as he came to see the queen, decided at that moment he no longer wanted to see the queen, and he threw an epic tantrum. <laughs> now, those of us who have had kids have had our kids throw tantrums in the grocery store, at home, here at church, at a friend's house, at the gas station. I doubt many of us have had our child throw a tantrum in front of the Queen of England. Why does the four-year-old throw a tantrum? It doesn't matter that she's the queen of England. The reason a four-year-old throws a tantrum is they are still convinced at that age that they are in charge of the universe. And when it doesn't go according to their purpose and their plan, the fix is to throw a tantrum. In Ephesians verses 1, verses 20 through 23, we realize Jesus is in charge. Look at how he's described in these verses. He sits at the right hand of the throne of God. He is, has the name that is above every name. He is above all rule, all authority, all power, all dominion. Jesus has the highest power. There is no one who has more power than him. Jesus has the highest honor. There is no honor that could be bestowed on someone that is higher than the honor bestowed on Jesus. Jesus has the uh, highest authority. There is no one that can say no to his yes. That's good news, except for one thing. It means we're not in charge. 
When we find out that Jesus is in charge and we are not in charge, do we throw a little bit of a tantrum? Like a four-year-old in front of the Queen of England, do we throw a bit of a fit? Of course we do. We want to be in charge. We still, even as we grow older, are somewhat convinced that the universe was designed and created for me. Or do we enjoy the fact that the one who is in charge knows us personally? The one who sits with the highest honor and highest power and highest authority, he knows your name. He knows your heartaches. He knows your joys. He knows everything there is about you. In fact, this is what the Bible says about him in Hebrews chapter 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Because Jesus is there, and because he knows our name, we have confidence to walk right into the throne room of God and draw near to God. And what the Bible says to do is instead of throwing a tantrum that we're not in charge, is instead to enjoy the fact that the one who is in charge knows our name and invites us into his presence, right into the presence of God himself. With confidence, we can walk into the holy place and draw near and stand near to Christ with, with no concern, with no fear, with no shame, no guilt. Because he is in charge and knows us through the cross and his resurrection, we have confidence to be in his presence. Not only that, but because of who He is and His great victory, we have confidence that we cannot lose. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, this is what we read. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So we have confidence because Jesus is higher than every authority, every power, that he has given us victory over all of our enemies. Did you know that we have total victory and complete victory over the devil? He can do nothing to a believer. We have complete victory over our sin. It's dead. It's, it's crucified. It's paid for. He's had total victory over our death. We do not have to worry about what our death means because we know our death means we are walking into new life in him. We have confidence that he has given us victory over all of our enemies. We stand against the enemies of God, not so that we can have victory. We stand against the enemies of God because he has already obtained it. We don't have to defeat the devil. It's done. The Bible says, resist the devil and he will what? He will flee because he knows he's lost. We have confidence that he has given us victory over our enemies. When you have sinned, notice I didn't say if, when you have sinned, who has victory? You think his victory ended because you did something naughty? I think his cross is more powerful than that. In our sin, he has washed us clean. We cannot sin our, ways out of his, sin our way out of his family. He has had victory for us. We have confidence to walk into his presence and enjoy his company. Jesus is powerful for us. What was the first thing? 
The worst thing that could happen, it's not that bad. That's crazy. The world thinks we're nuts for thinking that. Secondly, we may not be in charge, but the one who is knows us. Okay, last point. Jesus is powerful for us because Jesus loves his people. I don't know if you've noticed this in Medford, but a lot of cars driving around town have green and yellow decorations on them. Big University of Oregon emblem on the back window, little flags that they hang in the window, University of Oregon ducks, sometimes green and yellow pom-poms hanging out of doors. Sometimes the driver is dressed as a duck. I mean, these kinds of things happen. (laughs) Have you noticed just an unscientific observation A few years ago, when the Ducks were contending for a national championship, you could close your eyes, throw a rock, and hit a car with University of Oregon decorations on it, right? Getting a little thinner nowadays. (laughs) Notice not quite as many cars are sporting green and yellow, and the Beaver fans are ecstatic. Jesus' love is different. Jesus is not a fair-weather fan. Jesus, out of his love and devotion for his people, has given himself wholly to his people, the church. Gives himself wholly over to us, fully and completely, and not when we're doing good, and he just does because that's his way. He just loves his people. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 23. I'm going to read verse 22. He, that is God, has put all things under Christ's feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. We are his body, the church, the body of Christ, the people of Christ are the way in which Jesus is going to accomplish his mission in the world around us. His relationship with the church, his body, is permanent. It's fixed, just as a head is permanently affixed to a body, or ought to be. He is the head of the church, permanently affixed to the body. And his relationship with the body of Christ, his church is permanent because of his work, because of his love and his devotion. The power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we learn in this passage, is seen in the fact that because he is raised for his people, We see his power in the fact that he is fully devoted to his body, the church. Who would be devoted to a church of people who are not perfect, which makes a church that is far from perfect? Only one who can raise the dead. And so we see the power of the resurrection in the fact that Jesus is fully committed to his people, the body of Christ. And so we can assume from that that the power of the resurrection is then experienced most fully in our love and affection for the body of Christ. If Jesus' resurrection power is on display most powerfully in the church, then we experience it most powerfully as a part of his body, the church. Or we could put it this way. We miss the power of God when we take the work of God in his body, the church, lightly. We miss the power of God when we take his love and power on display in his body, the church, lightly. May I suggest, if you don't mind, we tend to think about from time to time, not today of course, our preferences, our agendas, our plans, our values. 
We think about things about us. We become the reference point for all those things around us, including our participation in the work God is doing in His church. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus only considers His love. Jesus only considers His love for the church that will never end even in our imperfections as a body of Christ. In fact, His love becomes more profoundly displayed in the fact that His devotion to us doesn't end even in our imperfections. In fact, we could say it this way, our commitment to one another, our covenant love for one another as a body of Christ puts on display the power of Christ's love. Our covenant love for one another as a body of Christ, taking seriously the work of God, not in us as individuals, but in us as a body of believers, puts on display the power of Christ. To say it this way, people would say, why in the world would people like that like hanging out together? Jesus must have given them a lot of love. Jesus wants us to experience His power. Jesus wants us to experience His love. And I would say that we do so best as a body of believers not merely as individuals. All right, Jesus is powerful in us. First thing, the worst thing that could happen isn't that bad. Still sounds kind of funny to say it. We may not be in charge, but the one who is in charge knows our name, and finally, Jesus loves his people. Listen, I hope that as we look at this passage, just very briefly this morning, that you might have noticed how incredible the work is that God has done for us. I mean, God is not merely working in Jesus. He's working in Jesus to reveal and make known His power to us and for us. He doesn't want us to just behold the power of Christ. He wants us to experience His power in reality, in our life. So let me end with just a couple of parting thoughts, if you don't mind. Since Jesus is raised from the dead, and since by faith we're raised with Him, we have nothing to fear. We don't have to be afraid anymore. We have lots of things that we're afraid of. We have lots of things we're worried about. But we can take courage in Christ. The worst thing, the absolute worst thing has been defeated, and the best is yet to come. One writer put it this way, and I think it's helpful. He said this, we should only glance at the world around us. We should only glance at those things in this life that frighten us. And, and bring us worry and anxiety. And instead, we should fix our gaze on Christ. Christ who is going to raise us out of all of these things. So put it this way. Just glance at our fears. Gaze at Christ. All right. Second, there is no one, there is no one with more power, honor, and authority than Jesus. There's no one. And he knows your name. He knows everything there is to about you. Uh, I should say about you. I don't know what to about you means. I would say this. We should take full advantage of the fact that the one who is in charge knows us. We should take full advantage of the access that Jesus gives us to the throne room of God. We need to pray. Don't worry if you're going to pray right. You have something on your mind? Pray about it. Tell him about it. What's on you? It doesn't matter what it is. He can handle it. In fact, he already knows about it. Is there something on your mind? Tell God about it. God, this is on my mind. I don't know what to do with it. Got me all worked up. Do you have something you need? Ask him for it. Say, God, I need this. 
Hook a brother up. Do you have something you feel terrible about? Confess it. He already knows you did it. He actually knows that it's much worse than you even know. Confess it, and he's going to pour his grace out on you. Prayer is our way of telling God two things. Number one, prayer tells God from our heart, you know what, I like hanging out with you. I like spending time with you, God. You're a great guy. Secondly, prayer tells God in our own heart that we can't do it on our own. We have to allow God to humble our hearts so that we can finally get to the place to say, you know what, God, I can't do it. Prayer is not asking God merely for his help. Prayer is asking God to do the whole job and saying, God, I can't do it. One of the barriers we have to our prayer is the fact that we really aren't that humble. We pray not because we want God lifted up. We pray because we want things our way. God, not your will, but mine be done. But when God does work to humble our hearts, bring us to a place where we know how much we need Him, we finally have the freedom to say, God, I'll take your way. My way is not so great. All right, finally, we need to wrestle with this fact, and, and this might be a little bit difficult for you to think about, but this. I'm just going to say it. Jesus loves His church way more than we do. It's just the reality of life, really. I mean, whether you're thinking about the church generally around the world or uh, in our country or in a region, or if you think specifically about a local church like our church here this morning, there's always going to be things that aren't quite the way you want them, right? There's always going to be things about church that sometimes bother us. I notice everybody's freezing, so nobody on the see is squirming. We should know this. All the things that bother us about church... They don't bother him at all. They don't bother him at all. You know what's also true? There's some things about church that just we just get excited about and are great. There's things about church that we just love. We, we are encouraged by the work of God and his people. We're strengthened by his word and by the fellowship with one another. Uh, we love knowing that others are praying for us, and these are all great things. But we have to keep this in mind. None of the things we love about church are as good as the stuff Jesus already has. Jesus shed his blood on the cross that we might be redeemed as his people. His blood cleanses us so we're white as snow. And the Bible also tells us in the books of Acts, book of Acts that he purchased the church with his blood. Jesus loves his people and he loves his church and he loves it right now, today, this morning. Right now, today, Jesus is in the room with us, and he's stoked to be here. And I can say it that way. He's stoked. He's excited to be with his people, with his church, gathering together. Thank the Lord. He is not waiting for us to measure up. He is not waiting for us to finally get our act together. He is not waiting for us to pull something amazing off. Do you know why? He already did all that stuff. He's the one that got his act together, and he pulled something amazing off. God died and rose from the dead. I've said this before. It is hard to raise somebody from the dead. It's really hard to raise God from the dead. And he did it. In fact, he did it easy. He made a look, he just raised from the dead. And Jesus is here with us, 
and he says, I love you. This is amazing. You guys all got into a room to sing about me? He's ecstatic about it. He is for us. Jesus is for the church. Maybe I could ask it this way. Are, they, are there ways that we need to be for the church too? Are there ways I need to step back and examine who I am for? Are my actions uh, supporting and encouraging the cause of Christ through His people? Am I willing to set aside my own judgments and preferences and just be all in for the people of God? Am I ready to be all in to see Christ proclaimed to the dark places of our city and our valley? You know what? My prayer is that we would do that. You know, it's not easy, uh, but with God's help we can do it as always. But we can join with Jesus and be, for his, and be for His people, for His church, because Jesus is for His people. He's our advocate. He is for His church. He's all in. He loves you. He loves His people. And He is pleased to see His work done in us. Praise Him.